Welcome to Simpac Live, where the rubber meets the road. I'm your host, Jeff Matthews, and tonight's subject is green aluminium. Are we there yet? I interviewed Dr. Mark Doreen, who is Group Leader, Electrochemical Processing Mineral Resources, CSIRO. Mark is a world-renowned expert in aluminium smelting and is a former director of the Light Metals Research Centre at the University of Auckland. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Okay. Now, for the viewers out there, Mark and I, um, we're just sharing a joke uh, as we're coming on screen. Uh, we've been old colleagues. We spent five years uh, touring the world together. Uh, we've spoken at international conferences all over the world. We've written, uh, co-authored a number of papers on aluminium smelting and decarbonisation together. Um, we've been to, oh, I was counting before, but at least 10, 10 different yeah, smelters in 10 different countries together. Uh Mark uh, is probably one of the most widely travelled people in aluminium. Um, uh, there's only be, be a handful of old guys and consultants who've been as many Western smelters as you, Mark, and, and you've been to China something like 35 times uh, for smelting. So you're pretty much um, the, the most experienced person I've ever uh, I've ever met, anyway. And and so it was an ideal time at a, 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 and to um, start to uh, have this conversation, green aluminium. Are we there yet? And I bring this up because uh, two two people in the past week have come out and said that they have made green aluminium with the use of hydrogen. Now uh, let's talk about that and let's let's celebrate our wins, but let's look at not um, not uh, minimise the the the, um, the steep learning curve and uh, what, what lies ahead and the, and the role that lies ahead. And also talk about what that actually means, and also some of um, the, the other green claims out there regarding aluminium. So first of all, we'll start with recycling. We'll do recycling first, and then we'll do primary aluminium smelting second. That's new aluminium smelting, because the releases in the, in the past week were from uh, EGA in the Middle East and, and from Norsk Hydro, uh, who said that they've had zero carbon aluminium, and it's obviously from remelt, from recycling, and um, and yes, and I was actually surprised, Mark, that they couldn't have electrified that process and that they needed to use hydrogen. Can can you explain why why they've gone down that route? Um, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give it a go. But um, and first of all, um, thanks for the thanks for the invite to talk um, about aluminium. It's I'm, I'm now working at CSIRO in Australia, so I've got a wider brief than just aluminium. But but the aluminium industry is um, and, and and aluminium as a material is is very dear to me, having worked in it for a number of years. Um, so yeah, um, recycling of, of aluminium is, is interesting. Um, Aluminium's um, a material where it can be recycled you know, over and over again, and, and some companies use the catchphrase "infinitely recyclable." Um, something like 75% of the aluminium that's ever been made is still in use because it's so easy to recycle, um, and we like to recycle it because it only takes about 5% of the energy to recycle aluminium compared to making um, new um, primary aluminium. So that's the reason why we're so interested in recycling. Um, and obviously, um, the the recycling market is is very large. It's um, pretty similar in in terms of the the total volumes per year recycled aluminium versus um, primary aluminium produced. Um, so when companies talk about their green credentials and the CO two footprint of the aluminium they're producing, um, 
yes, it's a little bit easier to make those claims for primary aluminium. Things like the Aluminium Stewardship Initiative have introduced a, um, a very robust um, methodology for doing the accreditation and, and determining what the carbon footprint is of primary aluminium. Um, for recycled or secondary, secondary aluminium, that's maybe a little bit um, trickier, but certainly companies are interested in, in doing that for obvious reasons. Um, and one of the things that we that we then need to think about in how the secondary aluminium market can change the way it operates is what can it do to get away from the traditional method of heating the remelt furnaces to melt the scrap aluminium and then recycle it. So that's normally been um, gas-fired burners into large remelt um, um, furnaces. And yes, um, of late there are some companies and there's the announcements you're talking about where we're now seeing hydrogen being investigated as a fuel source to um, to run those furnaces for remelting um, the, the scrap metal. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's an obvious question, which is why don't they just electrify? Now, I'm by no means an expert on the way these furnaces work. All I can say is that um, that electrifying would have been an easy solution if it worked in this instance some time ago. So you can imagine that had that been an easy option, people would have put it in play. So there's obviously some technical reasons why it's not easy to have um, electrical heating in these large furnaces and the environment that's there, where we still need to have a flame that's heating the furnace roof that then radiates onto the scrap metal and melts it. Right. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with using hydrogen as a, as a fuel source for those sources. We're going to have to use it for steel, cement, glass, fertilizer production. You know, uh, it, that's where we've got to go for those high temp heat um, um, uh, applications. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there are some challenges around the potential for hydrogen gas to be dissolved into liquid aluminium, and therefore, when that metal is um, is poured and solidified in the casting process for there to be some tiny um, um, cavities or you know little um, little holes where the hydrogen was and if you didn't remelt that aluminium again in, a, in the downstream process it could cause a problem so yeah there are some challenges they can be overcome with um, smart processing and that's not a new thing that we need to overcome either that knowledge is already known right so in terms of the in terms of the tonnage though uh, the total tonnage of what's recycled every year and what we've just been announced it it's it's really just a fraction of a fraction of a percent and we've got a long way to go yeah, that, that's right the the um, and 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 this is also true in the primary market the amounts um that are um being claimed to be genuinely green um you know zero carbon footprint in the and this largely pertains to the energy that that's used in the process of remelting. Yes, there's only a very small volume. Yes. So, and and let's just go stay on uh, recycling for for a bit because the the, the market for scrap. I I interviewed uh, Nadine Bloxham from um, uh, Alfred in the UK, and I, I, when I was looking at that, the UK actually export more scrap aluminium than they actually import virgin aluminium. And um, so they're very good at recycling and collecting and 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 and, and recycling it out there. Um, other other countries around the world are not so good. So we all need to step up. But I mean, I, I've I've called aluminium the beautiful metal because it is recyclable and it only uses a fraction of a percent of energy to 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 remelt it and and this infinite recyclability. So we need to really capture all of that aluminium. So that 65, 70% or whatever it is that's still in use, we, we, we need we need a true circular economy. We need 100% going back in, in aluminium because uh, the the 
quantity required, they're now saying that we will need as much aluminium to be made between now and 2050 as we've made in the last 125 years. So, uh, you know, we, we're going to double aluminium again, and, and you know, and, and that needs to be truly circular. It's probably yeah. one of the easiest things to collect and recycle, though, of anything. I mean, and, and I'm in can, and, you know, and, but even in, in building materials, aluminium windows and things like that, framing and that, it's probably one of the easiest. Um, and, it sh and we should put, you know, more effort into it now because it's one of the easiest to do. It's one of the easiest yeah. to, to identify and, and, and to sort out and, 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 to, and, to, um, and to even get consumer behaviour in terms of cans and and, and 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 scrap. So, okay, so recycling, we've just done a little bit. Um, these companies forged a pathway. Uh, we should celebrate that. We should give them a pat on the back and we should encourage them to do more and, and everyone else to do more, really. Yes, we should. Look, the, um, you're right. The, the world needs more aluminium. It's... Um, it's an amazing material for its properties. Um, it's quite simple that you know, and, and it's, it's widely accepted um, that aluminium is a um, is a really vital part of um, you know, decarbonising industrial systems, decarbonising energy systems, um, changing the, the the way vehicles are manufactured. So it, look, it's really important. Um, any steps that companies make, um, yes, they, they absolutely should be applauded. Um, and they, and, and we, what we need is we need more more companies to to forge a pathway, and then we need even quicker than that. We need more companies to to follow them and and, and get on that same pathway. Yes. Yes, so shared pathways as well, in terms of you know the, the technology behind achieving this also needs to be shared. There's no point trying to lock it up and and patent it. We're not going to get there by companies locking technology away for twenty years either. Yeah. So yeah. Um, sharing those pathways. So so let's come to primary aluminium smelting, and and I want to. Um, uh, for the audience and for anyone who hasn't followed aluminium, there's some there's some critical numbers, and it's kilos of CO2 per kilos of aluminium produced when primary, and uh, and and roughly about fifty percent, a little bit less, forty eight percent, is of all of the um, primary aluminium is made from hydropower. And and hydropower, of course, doesn't have the you're not burning coal, you don't have the bad CO2, so that. Um, that aluminium from hydropower um, still has about four kilos of CO2 per kilo of aluminium, correct? Yes. Yeah, look, that, that's right. In, in, the, in the, the, the process, and it's based on, um, it's called the Hall-Heroux process. It's named after the two people who invented it, one in, in America and one in France in the late 1800s. Um, that process is, is what is used um, worldwide, apart from a very, very small um, quantity of, of development um, production. So that process is used worldwide. The process uses carbon anodes, and, um, and in the smelting process, the oxygen is removed from the alumina. Um, the oxygen combines with the carbon and makes carbon dioxide. So, so in that process, um, you actually get about two tonnes of carbon dioxide per tonne of aluminium from the carbon anodes. And then from other areas in the production chain, you end up with a number that's somewhere uh, um, just under four tonnes of CO2 per tonne of aluminium. So, yes, we're, we're, we're making aluminium, but we're actually making a lot more carbon dioxide. Um, so, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's less than, than four to one for, um, for the production where we are using carbon-free electricity. If yes. we then step up to using gas-fired electricity, 
we double that number, we're about eight tonnes of carbon dioxide per tonne of aluminium. And if we step up to um, coal-fired electricity, we basically double it again. So we're now in the range of 14 to 18, say 16 tonnes of CO2 per tonne of aluminium. Right, and, and I, I recall, um, I recall uh, we were at a, I was giving a speech in London and, and you gave me a, a statistic uh, or a sentence to use from, I think it was a professor in Norway who said that, that aluminium smelters were actually producers of CO2, that, uh, that byproduct was aluminium. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and if you look at how much CO2 is produced per kilo of aluminium, you've got to agree yeah. with them. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes. So, um, and, and this is also why it, that, that recycling is really important because once you make it, um, and, and just so you follow the carbon and or the embedded carbon, once you've made it, that, that carbon intensity put into it at the start is locked in forever. If you can recycle it without using any more carbon, essentially the, 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 the carbon's been produced and you've got this material you can use infinitely recycle that doesn't produce carbon anymore. So over the, over the long, very long lifetimes that you could be recycling that, yes, there's an argument that you could get away with the initial um, uh, carbon, um, embedding carbon into it because, um, and look, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I think I think primary aluminium smelting. We'll get onto it in a minute. Can do more. I'm just saying that there is an argument that does hold up. That once you produce it, it's locked in, and you don't have to produce it again and again to use the aluminium again and again. Yes, that's right. Under the the current accounting methods for um, embedded carbon, we allocate all of that um, that that carbon footprint to the first use of the aluminium. So effectively. On, on all of the subsequent recycle and reuses, we only add the, the, the footprint of the recycling process, yes. not a portion of the initial. So, yeah, whether the, whether the carbon footprint when the aluminium was generated as, as virgin material is high or low, from, this, from, from the, the recycling onwards, it remains simply the, the input from the recycling process. Yes. Okay. So okay, so coming back to to primary, so we've got these um, we've got these levels of carbon. Uh, there's four kilos with hyd uh, with, with hydropower, around eight with gas, and around fourteen to eighteen with coal. And and when when the grid is starting to decarbonise, like like we have here in Australia, um, then some of that it's, some of that will be coming down it won't all be at 18 it'll start to mitigate down because the grid's coming down now we look at um it was ega who did a a, um, a ppa um recently with um solar solar uh, solar farm and are producing now that they can follow the chain from the solar power they get during the day into the aluminium and therefore halve their aluminium, halve their CO2. So instead of using gas at eight, they can be producing it four from, from solar power. Now, I, I actually applaud that. And one of the reasons I applaud it is you're aware you were on a call. We had an, an ASI call, um, stewardship call, back in about 2019. And I got into an argument with somebody from Bahrain Aluminium. 
And I said, you could go out and you could introduce renewables tomorrow. You could, you know, you could take a third of your production and put it in a solar power. And they were just saying, and they know that was impossible. They actually said, where, where would we put all the solar panels? We don't have enough space. <laughs> it's like, it's the Middle East. <laughs> and so to see a CEGA come out in 2023, just four years later, and say, we've, we've purchased this massive water power during the day from solar power. Uh, that, that's great to me. We, we actually need more of that. Yeah, and that should be applauded too, I think. Yeah, and, and look, I know that it's easy to, to look at the industry and to, and to be critical and say, well, they need power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they can't stop. Um, so therefore, um, you know, the argument that you, that you can apply is, well, using solar doesn't work because what about nighttime? But but the fact is that in any use of 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 energy that is clean is better than than none. If you can if you can use for a you know if it's a small portion of your production if you can use for a, a certain number of hours a day that's better than none. And it will be cheaper because given the price uh, given the price of gas is that there's an international price now. These solar panels will be providing them electricity much cheaper than burning gas. Even though they, even though the gas is essentially, you know, they've got their own. I know they've got their own gas-fired power station and they've got their own supply of gas, but they could be selling that gas elsewhere for more. I, I would imagine. Yes, and um, if you, um, you look, if, if you think about the potential value for um, in the marketplace for green aluminium versus, um, you know, dirty aluminium, um, yeah, there's there's an emerging market with some premiums. Um, so there's some some reasons to to to, to go green. Because of that, but obviously um, it, companies see the, the the whether there's trade-offs or not. They obviously see the value in signing PPAs for mixed um, mixed power sources that include um, some some renewables, solar or, or wind or both. And and I think Portland in Australia is another example that's that's done that when they've renegotiated energy contracts. Yes, yes. And look, so I see some of the hydropower um, uh, smelters are starting to use wind and their own wind. And they can buffer that and use their hydro essentially as a battery. They can use the wind when it's blowing and, and use the hydro when it's not. It, it makes totally sense too because um, it, it means, um, it, 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 again, bringing in that variable renewable at a, at a, at a cheaper rate um, yeah. it make, makes sense of, of decarbonising. So now China is held up as the bad boy of aluminium smelting. Now, essentially, so viewers who haven't followed aluminium smelting, it's generally followed the cheapest form of electricity, and usually the cheapest form of stranded electricity too. So these are the big smelters in Siberia, um, and the smelters uh, here were were established uh, at the same time as the coal-fired power stations and the coal mines. That was that thing, except for um, except for Tasmania, it was hydro. In New Zealand, we had uh, stranded hydro, which we, which we uh, um, you know connected. So then, in about oh, probably the the nineties, maybe the two thousands, production migrated to China because it was suddenly the cheapest form of power could be. They could basically, and I think you've been to smelters, you can describe them, where they just built them right next to the coal uh, coal mine. They've And just and basically the power station is across the road and there's a cable across the road to the aluminium smelter. Yes, and, um, and, it, and it also wasn't even necessarily migration of capacity to China. It was, um, a lot of this was... Um, 
as um, as economic development um, and you know um, standard of living increased in China and the and the internal demand for aluminium in China increased, they satisfied that demand by um, by building their own smelters and, and rapidly um, increasing their own aluminium industry and the, the the scope of it. So yes, the the that growth. Um, by and large, occurred in areas um, where there is um, plenty of available coal. So we're talking about sort of um, some of the north, northwest, uh, midwest, and far west provinces. Um, yeah, where, where um, large coal, um, large gas, um, coal-fired power stations, smelters um, located nearby, and largely um, using um, a combination of imported bauxite um, processed in China and domestic bauxite processed to make the alumina in China, um, anodes produced in China, smelters um, close to the source of energy, and then the aluminium, um, most of it used for domestic consumption and some of it being exported. Um, and I think that aluminium was one of the, the materials that was um, was considered when the, the, the Belt and Road um, concept was developed for shipping from China across um, across um, Central Asia into into uh, Europe. So, it, but what you've also you know been to China so many times, they 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 are developing renewables faster than anybody else on the planet as well, and um, and including some big hydro streams. I know there were some big hydro streams that they built and then suffered droughts, and you know there, there's been aluminium smelters built and then closed down. But generally, those um, burning burning the coal is it, it's becoming they're even migrating away from it. Sure, I know that. that, that in fact, I, I look at it and think we burnt our coal over 125 years, the Industrial Revolution, and they sort of burnt their equivalent over 30. So they might have done it a lot quicker. But they were going to build their economy on like we've built our economies on the back of coal. They're going to build theirs, and then they're going to get rid of it. Yes, and um, and we have seen in the last few years being a, um, a a little bit of a shift. So, in the Chinese market, there is a cap on the capacity of aluminium smelting that's allowed to operate. So, um, and what's actually happened in, in very recent times is some of the Chinese companies that are wanting to expand capacity are looking elsewhere, um, looking at places like Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia to see if they can and build new capacity there. But within China, yes, there has been um, some shifting of capacity. Some of this is driven by the desire to improve um, the problem of the pollution from the coal-fired power stations. So if you force an aluminium smelter to close, you effectively um, create a situation where you don't need the, the power station to be supplying it. So if you, um, if you close an aluminium smelter that's using coal-fired electricity, and then you rebuild that smelter in another province, um, and the province of choice has been Yunnan, where there was a, um, a rapid expansion of hydropower capacity. So a number of smelters relocated or um, new smelters were constructed in the Yunnan um, province. But it introduced another problem, which is that um, because of that rapid um, expansion of hydropower, it's, there's not huge um, lake storage capacity feeding it, so it's a little bit more. Um, we've, we've gone from a, um, an issue of um, how do we, you know, having continuous coal to now having um, disrupted hydro capacity because of the seasonal issues. So we've shifted capacity, and then the, and then the smelters have. So rather than the smelter being forced to, to to shut down at periods of the year 
because the pollution is too high when they're burning a lot of coal and generating yeah. a lot of energy in winter, we've now got seasons where there's not enough water, not enough rainfall, the dams are empty, and then the smelters have to close down because there's no power at all. And, and, and is that because they actually never took the time to fill them up, or is that just design issue? With that, I, they did... I, 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 I'm not sure. I think it's just a design that they that they went yeah. so quickly and, and yeah. yeah, look, they just they you know built capacity <laughs> that matched the energy demand, um, and without thinking about the storage behind it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. So let's. Let's look at um, two things, uh, two more things on prime aluminium. So, if you're in a, uh, if you're connected, grid connected aluminium smelter like we've got here in Australia, and you and that grid is decarbonising, and there's more solar and wind coming in, we're getting rid of the coal. There's a bit of hydro in there. There's some interconnections going on to keep it going. How do you how do you contribute to the decarbonisation of the grid? Because I know you and I, and there's no point hiding it, we've gone on record um, saying that um, you know, aluminium smelters can do more and they can actually modulate energy. Uh, they, they provide some frequency response services now, and yes, they sh- can shed load for a bit, but, it's a, but shedding load for a bit is very disruptive to the aluminium making process. It's very disruptive to the pots and, and the heat balance of the pots, and, it, and, and it's it, it disruptive to everything, including shortening their life. Now, we've we've all suggested that um, uh, that and your and your name is one of the names on the original um, end pot uh, um, uh, patents, uh, heat exchanger patents, but which expire very shortly. But um, that technology. Heat exchanger technology can mean aluminium smelters can go up and down in production 20, 20%, possibly even 30% in some cases, at the, at the turn of a dial and start to actually act as a, as a real battery for the good without doing disruption to the, to the, to the smelters. And, yes. and if they did that, it means that they could have PPAs for a lot more renewables and be taking it in. And then they could get their, you know, their, 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 uh, they're 14 down to closer to eight or, or whatever it is. They could move it downwards by by contracting more renewables and taking more renew- renewables and just doing some simple energy modulation. And they've been loath to do it for whatever reason. My my prediction is, is when the patents come off in, in 2025, we'll see some activity. But it's inevitable that, if you've got variable energy in the grid and you've only got some batteries and, and, and everybody else is helping the grid, people are, are putting their electric vehicles on solar timers or smart timers and their, their houses on smart meters to be able to, 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 to integrate with a grid that's got a lot of power during the day and not so much at night. The smelters just can't sit there and say, no, we're not going to change. You know, there's there's no social license for them to do that. It's not, and and I know that they're going in the UK. They're going to the EU and saying we're a critical metal. So we have a special case. We have a special case to pollute the earth. It's like, mm, yeah, really. Um, you know, and and so so I'm. You know, you and I have both predicted that in 20 years' time, all smelters will modulate energy. They they, they just will have to. So they might as well start down that journey now. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's a couple of issues here. Yeah, yes, they they will have to. The, the the social license won't allow them to to be bullies in the grid that, that they've been in the past. Um, so 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 they're going to have to respond to that. Um, but I also think there's this this issue of, um, you know, that the industry as a whole says that it's developed a, a pathway towards um, 
zero emissions or reduced emissions and then there's some waypoints on that and following 1.5 degree reductions or sustainable development scenario things um, i guess what we need to be careful of is that there's, there's a bit of an assumption from an outsider that perhaps the industry is just progressively going to work its way down that path um, i think the danger is that the industry does nothing for a long time and then hopes that yep. at some point they drop off um, right, right. And so I think we need to be, um, we need to be, you know, the, the, there's the potential for the industry to say, yep, we're working on it. Um, and, but in the meantime, there actually, there's, there's actually not, not, not a lot happening. And they, and perhaps while there's not a lot happening, you know, they hope that the grid has become decarbonized and then sort of, you know, job done and they didn't actually need to contribute anything along the way. Um, yeah. So there's yeah. the potential for that. Um, there's also the potential for they're putting um, all of their eggs in, in, in only one or two baskets and really hoping that those baskets do hatch, um, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 look, I, I, how I see this is, here's an analogy for you. It's like your next door neighbour buying an electric vehicle and you claiming you've helped the neighbourhood re, re, the neighbourhood reduce your CO two emissions, yes, technically the neighbourhood's gone down at CO two emissions, but you didn't do anything. Yeah, and right. that's the bit that's the bit that I'm saying that you know, I, I, I'm I, as you know I'm I'm for aluminium. I think it's a beautiful material, and I, I think it's important to our future going forward and important to carbonisation. But you've got to you've got to be you've got to be also taking some of the heavy lifting, and that to me is energy modulation because everyone in their own in their own lives are going to be doing energy modulation at some point, in some way in our homes and everything. Everyone needs to participate. So, okay, we'll move off energy. We'll, we'll move off that before we get too involved. I get too heated about it. But um, and let's come to the four kilos. So yep. to get the four kilos, there's only two ways I've heard of. There's analysis, which is completely doesn't use carbon anodes at all, and I'll let you talk about that. And then just just the other day, somebody said, "Well, if we if we carbon capture, and we carbon capture from, they they were suggesting carbon from um, biochar or or you know waste product or something, taking it out and making the carbon anodes, then the carbon going back will have will have um, if you made biochar, you'd reduce fifty percent. Like so, what I'm talking about here for anyone uh, um, not following me." is if we let vegetation fall on the ground and that rots on the ground, and this is trees and forests and whatever, um, it releases methane and it releases CO2. And, and if you burn it at a high temp pyrolysis, you only release 50% of the carbon that it does naturally. And then you use the biochar or, or black carbon or whatever they want to call it to make the anodes. You've reduced the, the natural carbon by 50%. You make the carbon, that goes back. And you actually had a, 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 an even scorecard because it was going to be released into the atmosphere anyway. You've just delayed and used it. So you've offset some. Now, you said it's a quality of carbon that may actually be the issue there. Yes. So yes. So there, there have been um, lots of attempts to use some forms of of biochar, um, these these reprocessing other materials to create a, a carbon material to use for anodes. So there's been there's been lots of attempts, and so far none of those attempts have have been successful. And the the issue is um, it's to do with um, the the microstructure of the carbon, and it's in the wrong form. So that if you make anodes and you use them in the smelting operation, those anodes 
they don't have the right structural integrity, they perform very poorly, and um, by, by perform poorly, what I mean is they um, they don't retain their structure, so we get a lot of carbon dusting, we get a higher energy consumption, so we effectively get more wasted energy. Um, so we get a higher carbon footprint because we're using more energy um, to, to use these anodes. Um, so they, so they, they, they effectively, they don't work very well in the process and cause a lot of disruption. So yeah, look, it's, um, doesn't mean that doesn't mean that somebody so, can't figure that one out, but they haven't figured it out yet. Right. And so that's a challenge that that could yes. could un, could unleash something. That's now, and, and that and yes, and and that's taking something that would have naturally occurred using the carbon, and then yes, you're releasing it, but you've made aluminium along the way. Um, yes. So where does the carbon come from now that you use in the carbon anodes? So the carbon now is. Um, it's 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 calcined petroleum coke. So right, so petroleum coke that's been through a calcining process, and the petroleum coke it's a um, it's a waste byproduct from oil refining. So it's a product that's generated when oil is refined. So yeah, look, I guess we um, can imagine that we do have some kind of really long term problem if we imagine a world in the future where there is no more refining of uh, of crude oil, then we wouldn't have any um, any coke from the delayed coking process um, to then make calcium petroleum coke to use to make anodes. But that's a lot further down the road. So right. yes, it's it's a um, it's a waste product or a you know a waste byproduct from the oil refining industry. Okay, now that brings us to analysis. Um, which is not using carbon anodes. It's a technology that was developed by Alcoa and uh, is it Alcoa alone or Alcoa and Rio? Alcoa and Rio Tinto. So yes, yeah, so what, what we're talking about with Alysis, but I mean, um, we're, we're actually talking about the, the concept of using um, an inert anode or a, um, a non-reactive anode. So rather than having a carbon anode that combines with the, the oxygen to make CO2, we have an anode that simply provides a surface where the oxygen ions get uh, turned into oxygen gas and are liberated and the anode remains intact and doesn't uh, get consumed. So yes, Alysis um, are a, um, a very visible company. Alysis is a joint venture between Rio Tinto and Alcoa um, with a large chunk of Canadian government money and a very small amount of money from Apple. Um, so basically Alcoa and Rio Tinto combined the their two independent um, and long-running developments in inert anodes um, and now with some some extra money working very hard to commercialize their version of an, an inert anode process um, if we go back a couple of years there was talk about that being um, perhaps being commercial ready about now, I guess. Yes. This, this year, I've, I remember I've, I was I've there. Seen, <laughs> um, yep, so this year, I've seen comments from Rio Tinto in particular that they think that um, that, that the Alysis technology might not be really commercially um, deployed until perhaps 2030. And in fact, um, even just in the last couple of weeks, Rio Tinto have announced um, an expansion um, or a, a replacing of some old capacity at one of their Canadian smelters with some new capacity. And that new capacity is going to be using the, the AP60 technology, which is the, the, the newest and, and, and best um, Rio Tinto technology for using the conventional smelting process and not the, the Alysis inert anode process. Yes. So, um, so within their own operations, they're not quite ready to deploy Alysis on a larger scale yet. I believe they've got right. it on a couple of, um, a couple of oh. test cells and they're, they're working very hard on that. And they're not the only company. Rusal have for a long time talked about this. Um, 
it's a little bit of a mystery what's happening in China. We don't think there's any particularly strong developments in the inner anode field, but they could surprise us and something could pop up there. There's, there's, there's always potential for something to be done um, uh, quietly in China. So, yeah, and, and I remember ha- I remember um, that um, I remember that speech. I um, I sat on a panel uh, and you were with me uh, in Berlin when they when they announced uh, that uh, they were going to have uh, Alice is up and running by now. And um, I think we looked at each other sideways back then. So uh, yeah, they um, so they have, they have produced aluminium in their test cells, though, haven't they? Yes, yes, they have, um, and and um, and this is where I think it was a very smart investment by Apple to be part of that process. Yeah, um, because Apple have announced that they are using some of this, and, and um, if you um, if you use carbon-free energy in that process, there's no carbon involved in the anode. There's no anode reaction consuming carbon. Therefore, you do have carbon-free aluminium. So it's a great story for Apple to talk about having genuinely carbon-free aluminium in iPads or iPhones. Yeah. Okay. So when we when we talk about uh, on this show with the rubber meeting the road, there's a pure zero carbon green aluminium. There is primary aluminium. There's been a little bit, like maybe to make it a car or something. Yeah, We're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe by now. I'm not sure. Maybe a, a, a few thousand um, tons. If, okay. A bit. Uh, a few thousand tons, and how many million are we up to now in, in global production a year? Oh, we're in 60, 60 something million, perhaps. Right. So we're, we're talking so a tiny bit. So yes. um, again, we, it's we've a got a bit, to, but but it, but it's a start. It's a start. We've got to celebrate the wins, yeah. otherwise yeah. nobody yeah. will start. So well done to well done to to, to Rio and Alcar and 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 Alisis. Um but to get that. To be all of the world's production by 2050 is that, that, that means that means rebuilding every smelter in the world, and yeah, which, which, which in, in, in all likelihood is, is not what's going to happen. So what? is there? So in given that you okay, so is there is it possible to carbon capture because it's in a pot room, the oxygen's going onto the carbon anode and it's releasing CO2. Could you carbon capture? Um, y- yes, you could. I mean, carbon capture certainly works better when there is a uh, an elevated um, CO2 concentration, and that's why it's of interest in places like um, steel mill, um, you know, off gas. Yeah, in aluminium smelters, yes, it's a, it's a, a much um, concentrated version of CO2. I'm not sure how the the, the carbon capture and, and um, sequestration process works in terms of the other contaminants or um, or gases that would be present in there. So I, I, I can't talk about that. But yeah, because, there's, there's potential for looking at it as, as a concentrated source. Yes, because when we get down to the, to the very end, the bits we can't mitigate any other way, we're going to have to cut the carbon capture. That, that, that's what I've always... I've never been a fan of trying to extract it out of the atmosphere now with, with machines because it's just... You know, it, it's it's not where you would start. You start with decarbonising the big things, the, elect- the electricity grid, and doing the things you can. And then the very last bit, well, if you can't do it another way, you're going to have to carbon capture it. And so it's possible because in the pot rooms, generally there's a, a ducting system that takes all those um, uh, poisonous, toxic gases, poisonous gases, whatever you call them, unhealthy gases, so away anyway. So it's being concentrated. Um, it's te- technically you could 
carbon capture it if you could work out how to separate the good from the bad or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's good. So, so to sum up then, yay, we've got some truly green recycled aluminium and it just we just need to go full throttle on that. And if that means um, it's got to make hydrogen production to do it, let's go full throttle. The electricity side of it, we, as grids decarbonise, the smelters have to do more to be to be to, to can retain their social license. They can't just piggyback on everybody else's efforts and claim they're the one who who reduced the CO two content of the, of the neighbourhood if they're not contributing. And then we've got the process, which yes, there's some shining light analysis. There's a possibility you could use carbon from uh, another source, a captured source, but it hasn't been done yet. And then there's probably the last resort of carbon capture, which if you can't. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah and, and, and and I mean, if we also think about that whole value chain, there's there's also considerable work um, being done by a number of companies um, in the in the bauxite to alumina part of the value chain. So of course, there's it's well known the work that's happening around um, reducing the CO2 footprint of mining by using alternative energy sources and vehicles and automating processes to be more efficient. Um, in the in the alumina um, in the the alumina refining stage of this, taking bauxite and turning it into alumina, yes, there's lots of work to change the energy source at various stages of that process. So we're talking about electrifying um, some of the process heat. Uh, we're talking about using hydrogen instead of gas as a fuel and calcination processes. So there are other stages, um, other. Um, you know, I think um, quite potentially very, very good um, improvements that are happening in, in the, the the steps of the process before we get to the aluminium smelter. So yeah. that yeah, across that entire value chain, we we can reduce the certain footprint as well, not just focusing on the smelter itself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mark. Look, thanks. It's a great chat as always uh, with you and I. It's always stimulating to talk to you. Yes. Thank you very much. And. Uh, we look forward to catching up with you uh, sometime. You're, you're down in uh, Melbourne. I'm up here in Brisbane, so it's not too bad for two Kiwis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no problem at all. Very, very good to talk to you, Jeff. Always, always good to. This is the similar conversation that we've had many times sitting on an airplane or in an airport somewhere like that, mulling well, over what, what what the industry needs to do to to, to pull its socks up and and, uh, and and be part of the the energy transition. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Jeff. Bye.